this morning uh, as we come to God's word to worship him and to sit under his word and to hear from him. Uh, If you have a Bible, please turn to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2. If you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, We're glad that you're with us. And for the summer, we're going to be spending our time in the book of Psalms. We're going to be jumping around a little bit to various Psalms. Uh, Last week, we started with Psalm 1, and I said last week that that Psalm 1 and 2 function as introductory material for the entirety of the book. Uh, Psalm 1 introduces us to the theme of God's law that shows up again and again throughout the book of the Psalms, but Psalm 2 also introduces us to the theme of God's king. God's king. So we see God's king uh, showing up again and again, uh, primarily through the 73 Psalms attributed to David, but also in other Psalms that maybe weren't penned by David, but but still have this focus upon God's king on his rule. And that's what Psalm 2 is directing us towards. Now, I I do have to say that when we approach the Psalms, and really when we approach the entirety of the Bible, we have to have a a particular passage in mind. And the passage I think that we have to have in mind is Luke chapter 24. Because in Luke 24, if you remember, Jesus is talking to some of his disciples. This is after he is resurrected and before he's ascended into heaven. And he starts explaining to them the scriptures. He starts opening it to them. And in Luke 24, Jesus says that he fulfills all that Moses and the prophets and the Psalms spoke of. That he fulfilled these things. And so what that means for us is that everything in the Bible centers around Jesus. That he is at the central of God's word, of his redemptive history. That the Old Testament, not just the New, but the Old Testament is driving towards the coming Lord Jesus. The New Testament writers are reflecting upon his coming and his resurrection And now we, as post-New Testament Christians, we await for his return. But but regardless of where we find ourselves in the redemptive history, in the redemptive story, we know that the truth is, is that at the center, not just of the universe, but of the center of God's redemptive history is Christ, is Jesus. Now, in, in the Old Testament, when we're looking forward to those passages, looking forward with those passages to Jesus' coming, there are some passages where it's, it's very clear that Jesus is spoken of, that the coming king is being alluded to. There are other passages where it's really difficult, right? Like, it feels like you're in the midst of fog, and you can kind of see the outline of someone or something, and you know it's out there, but it's hard to see through the fog. But there are other passages where the, the radiance of the sun is so bright that there is no fog, there is no haze, there is nothing to impede our vision. We can see him very clearly. And Psalm 2 is one of those passages. Psalm 2 is one of those passages that is very clearly speaking of the Lord Jesus. In fact, between Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, depending on how you uh, understand some of the allusions, they are the two most cited psalms in the New Testament. And the reason why Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are the two most cited is because they are two of the most clearest depictions of Jesus. And so when the New Testament writers were seeing Jesus and reflecting upon him, they could not help but think of the king spoken of in Psalm 2 and of the foundation spoken of in Psalm 110. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look to this king who is greater than David 
this one whom the psalmist is pointing towards, this one, this king that we put our hopes for peace in. So let's go ahead and read, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 2. You can find it printed in your order of service. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them with, in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my favorite stories is the story that is depicted in HBO's miniseries, The Band of Brothers. I love The Band of Brothers. This uh, miniseries that is based on Stephen Ambrose's book by the same name. The Band of Brothers is the uh, depiction, it is the true historical events of the 101st Airborne Easy Company. So the 101st Airborne Easy Company, these were men who, who began their training to go to World War II at Camp Tacoa in Georgia. They are the men who dropped behind enemy lines on D-Day. They held the line at the Battle of the Bulge, and they took Hitler's eagle's nest. The Band of Brothers is an amazing story. It's just this incredible account of how every time the Allied lines need to be advanced, Easy Company was called on again and again and again because it seemed without fail that they held the line, that they continued to move forward, that when the enemy advanced, they could not be moved. And so they spent weeks, in fact, many more weeks than we even know that is healthy, that they won't even allow soldiers to stay on the line any longer. They spent weeks on the line, and they spent many months out in the, in the elements in, in facing the enemy bombardments. No roof over their head, no shelter to protect them. There's this one scene in the Band of Brothers where they just held the line at Bastogne at the Battle of the Bulge, and, and they had freed another Belgium city. They had freed them from Hitler's uh, reign, and, and they had one night, one night of peace, one night of refuge. They found themselves in a convent, in a sanctuary, in, in Rechamp, in Belgium, and there they sat the cover of night, their candles illuminating the sanctuary. The sisters have brought in their choir and they're singing the song that they don't even know the words to. And as the camera pans, you can see on their face the, the dirt that is caked into their skin. You can see the burden of battle weighing on their shoulders. You can see the pain of fighting in their eyes. There were young men, 18, 19. There were some older men, 30s and 40s, who were there. But whether they were young or they were older, all of them alike all felt the burden of war. And they found peace and refuge just for this one night, 
they only had one night with a roof over their head, they would be sent back to the line the next morning. But for that one night, they found peace and they found refuge. Peace and refuge, those are words that we do not use very frequently in our common vernacular. It doesn't just seem to roll off our tongues. Those seem like words of a bygone age, peace and refuge, and yet they are the very words that express what many of us feel in our hearts, what we are longing for and what it is that we desire, peace, refuge. We long for peace when we turn on the TV and we hear lies and rumors of lies. When we click on social media and it's filled with comments that, uh, and words that are grating against our souls. We long for refuge when we experience the disruption in our families. Those relationships that have been strained and are breaking. We, we want peace when we reflect on the uncertainties that live within the depths of our hearts. Peace and refuge, that is what we are all wanting. It is what we are all needing. In those times, we long for peace in the places where we have only experienced pain. That hope, that longing, it is not new to us. It has actually been ingrained into the hearts, into the fabric of our souls ever since Adam. You remember Adam, he walked with God in the garden in peace, and yet in his rebellion... In his rejection of God's law, he took that peace and he spurned it. He sent it away and instead he clung to his own rebellious heart. And ever since then, we have longed for peace to be restored. We've longed to find refuge again in the garden of to hear the peaceful voice of our God calling to us and inviting us into his presence, peace and refuge that is what our aching hearts are longing for. But where do we find it? Where do we find it? Because there are many things that will offer it to us. There are many things that will project itself as a way of giving us peace, of giving us refuge. But where are we to find it? Well, that's what the psalmist, this psalm is describing. You see, the psalmist is telling us not only where we find peace, where it is that we can discover it, but where we are not to find peace. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. The, the first thing is where not to find peace. Before we look to it, let's, let's see where we shouldn't find it. Well, notice in the very beginning, who are the characters that were invited, that were introduced to immediately? Nations, peoples, kings, rulers of the earth. Now look, in the Old Testament, when it speaks of nations or peoples in the plural like that, Instead of the nation or the people, it's almost always referring to those people who are outside of God's people. So the nations, the kings, the rulers of the earth, the peoples, what is being depicted here are those who are outside of God's rule, outside of his reign, and they are in active opposition against the Lord. That's who they are. I mean, we see what they're doing in verse 3. They're conspiring together. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. See, the nations, the peoples, the rulers, they think that in order for them to have peace, to have satisfaction in this life, that the way to find satisfaction is to burst the law of the Lord off of them, right? And we talked about the law last week. That they want to be rid of God's rule, burst his cords apart so they, they would be free to live as they please. But instead of finding peace, their rebellion leads to destruction, 
We see how God responds in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. Now, there are only three times in the Psalms where we are told that God laughs. Psalm 3, or excuse me, Psalm 2, Psalm 37, and Psalm 59. And in each one of them, God's not laughing because, you know, something tickled him. (laughs) He's not laughing because he sees something endearing in his people. In each time, it is a laugh of derision. It is a laugh against his enemies. God sits in the heavens and he scoffs at their futile attempts to use their power to overthrow his power. Foolish nations, silly rulers, who do they think they are? That's how God approaches them. He laughs at them. He laughs when he sees their weak attempts to overthrow his power. But he doesn't just stop by laughing. He continues on. He's going to show his power. Look at verse 9. God is speaking through David, his his king, his son, and he's speaking about a, a king to come. And in verse 9, he says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. All right, think about that imagery for a second, a potter's vessel. The kings and the rulers and the nations and the peoples, they, they believe that they're strong enough to throw off God's bonds. But when they come against God, God's strength is so strong, his king's power is so mighty that they are scattered like potter's vessels. Think about how weak a clay pot is. I mean, the the smallest of child could break a potter's vessel, right? Could just knock it over and it would crumble. The kings and the rulers, they think they're so powerful, but when they are met with God's power, their power is nothing. It is like a clay pot that has been cast on the ground. It shatters. Their strength can't give peace because there is no peace. There is no refuge apart from the Lord. They don't find peace. They find instead pain. Now, I wonder. I wonder if people um, looked at our lives and examined us through that lens of where is it that they are looking for peace? Where is it that they are finding refuge? If they looked at my life, if they looked at yours, where do you think they would would say we are finding our peace, our security, our refuge. You know, it's easy to to think that the world will provide those things. I mean, Israel did. Do you remember in 1 Samuel? In 1 Samuel, Israel is looking at the world around them. They're looking at these nations and these rulers and these kings. They're looking at all these peoples that have surrounded them, and they look at them, and they are concerned. They are afraid that their peace is going to go away, that they are not going to be secure any longer. And so what do they do? They say to Samuel, Samuel, call out to God on our behalf and provide us with a king. Now, Now, the longing for a king actually isn't wrong in of itself because God said in Genesis to Abraham that there would be kings that would come from your line. And in Deuteronomy, God gave the law that would supervise, that would overrule or direct the the work of the king. And so the longing for a king isn't bad in of itself. It's the kind of king they wanted. Do you remember what they said? Give us a king like the nation's. 
We're looking at all these countries, all these warring parties around us. We're looking at all these peoples. Give us a king like them, because if we have a king like them, we will be safe. He will fight our battles for us. He will defend us. Give us a king like the nations. They look to the world to find their peace. But you know, it's not just Israel. We do it too. We don't have kings, right? We threw that guy off a long time ago, uh, unless you're Canadian. Um, but um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm American now. So um, I cast off the bonds of that repressive government. No, um, but we do it. Not with kings, we do it with presidents. Now, it's not an election year, so it's kind of safe for me to say this, right? But, but every four years, what do we hear? Maybe not from y'all, but we hear this every four years. This is the most important election of our generation because if we don't get the right person in the Oval Office and if we don't get the right people in Congress and if we don't get the right judge on the bench, then all our peace and security is going to fall away. So we have to vote for whoever. I'm, it's not just me that's heard that, right? <laughs> right? And what is that saying? Our peace, our security. Now, now listen, I'm, I'm not saying that those things are important. They are important. Be active, be involved, be uh, wise voters, those sorts of things. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying do not put your peace and your hope in a president. Because how's that gone? And I'm not even talking about like this cycle. I'm talking about our, the history of our nation. How is that gone? It doesn't go very well if we are honest with ourselves. Because no president, no Congress, no judge can give us the peace that our hearts are longing for. And so it's not just Israel, we do it too. And it's not just in the political realm, we do it with the things that, that are seeking to give us comfort, right? Like advertisers know that this is what we're longing for. So a couple of years ago, nationwide, so the, the main reason why you watch the Super Bowl is for the commercials, right? I mean, that's why I watch the Super No, I don't. Uh, I like the football. But still, um, but, but the commercials, a couple of years ago, Nationwide Insurance came out with a Super Bowl commercial. And the tagline for this commercial was, we can make safe happen. We can make safe happen. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, don't you want to be safe? I want to be safe. I want peace. I want security. I want refuge. I mean, they're speaking right to our hearts, right? That uncertainty, we can make that happen. We can make safe happen. It's directed right at our longings. It's such a wonderful promise, and such a wonderful promise that falls completely flat, right? Because we know. I mean, the fool it sounds good in the moment, but the foolishness that an insurance company can really provide us the peace and security that we long for, it's as foolish as thinking a president or a nation or a vocation or a family or anyone other than God can give us peace. Because they can't. No, you see, the peace that we are longing for, the refuge for our souls, it's not found in this world. So where is it found? Well, the psalmist tells us it's found in God, in his anointed. Look, that's who the nations are rebelling against. It's not just God, but they're also rebelling against his anointed. In verse 2, the Lord and his anointed. That's who they are speaking against. Now, that word anointed, you can see um, in your Bibles, has a big capital A. Now, what's fascinating about this word is that the word that we translate anointed in Psalm 2 is the Hebrew word that we translate also Messiah. Now, some of you probably know that, but think, think about that for a second. The Lord's anointed is his Messiah. 
And his Messiah is his anointed. Now, throughout the Old Testament, this word is used repeatedly for people other than the Messiah. So we have these little a anointed ones. Specifically, oftentimes, it's prophets, priests, and kings. They are anointed by the Lord. So we think of David when Samuel comes and he uh, says, uh, and, or, yeah, yeah. So David comes and he is anointed to become the king, right? So he's anointed with oil. He's going to be the king. He's a little a anointed. So every prophet, every priest, every king is actually building up towards this capital A anointed, this Messiah. That's who the peoples, the nations are rebelling against. And God is speaking of that. He's invoking that in verse 7. So God is speaking through David. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now what's fascinating is that what's in the background of this passage, of this verse, is the promise that God made to David. So God interacts with his people through covenant. He still does. It's not just an Old Testament principle, right? We're under the new covenant. But the covenant that preceded the new covenant was the Davidic covenant. And 2 Samuel 7, God promised to David that there would be a king who would come from your line. A king who would be greater than you, David. A king whose reign would have no end, whose rule would be over all the earth. A king who would be greater than David or Solomon. His kingdom would, be, would have no end. His throne would be forever. And when God invokes verse 7, that's what he's speaking of. He's speaking out of that context. He's not speaking in verse 7 about David or Solomon or any other king, human king. He's talking about the true king, the Lord's Messiah, the anointed, the capital A anointed one. And we know from the New Testament that that is Jesus. That that is Jesus. Think about when, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit came upon him. It descended. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And God from heaven said, this is my son with whom I am pleased. And when he rode in triumph on a donkey into Jerusalem, the people called out, Hosanna to the son of David. And when he ascended into heaven, when he ascended into heaven, he was processing into the throne room of God, and he sat down at God's right hand on David's throne. He is the anointed one. He is the king that we have been longing for, that the people had known would one day come. He is the Messiah. That is where we find peace. He is the king of peace. But we find peace in him not just because he's the anointed one, but also because in him we find rescue. We find rescue. Now, I I would imagine that if you were reading this on your own, and, and I just asked you if, if there's rescue or judgment, you would probably focus on judgment, because that's what it seems like most of this passage is about, right? Like rods of iron and, you know, thrown on the ground and scattered shards. It, it sounds like a war. It doesn't sound like a rescue. And yet rescue is there. Look at verse 10. After God has declared what he's going to do to his enemies, he says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Now, there is real warning. Right? There is real warning. This, this isn't a game. It's serious. Whoever we take peace and refuge in, it, it is actually a matter of life and death. That's why in verse 12, the threat of death is there. 
Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. There's the threat of death, of perishing. It is very real, but that threat can be mitigated. The warning implies that there is still an opportunity to turn. That there is an opportunity to turn and find refuge, not wrath. So I want you to notice something. Who is it that is warned? Who is it that's invited to turn from their ways and enter into the peace of God? It's the king's. It's the rulers, it's the nations, it's the peoples, it's the very people that we were introduced to at the very beginning of the psalm. Those who were in active opposition to the Lord, who were living in the shadow of his wrath, are now offered opportunity to experience rescue. That's who he's warning. He's basically saying, kings and rulers, peoples and nations, turn from your ways and come and find peace under the king. Think about that. These were the people who were actively opposing the Lord. Do you know what this means? This means that there is no one too far gone to experience God's call of peace. There is no one who is in too great of opposition, who is too great of an enemy, who cannot be one to Christ's side. I mean, think about who it is that's writing this. The New Testament tells us that it's David. We don't have a title, uh, a superscript in Psalm 2, but the New Testament says that it was David who wrote Psalm 2. Think about that, David. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a man who committed adultery and who conspired with others to commit murder and to cover up that adultery. Think about Abraham and Moses, Peter and Paul. These, these are men who were filled with pride and deception, who were impetuous and, and persecutors. All were at once enemies, but they heard the words of rescue. And they were drawn into God's peace. Moses and David, Abraham and Paul. I mean, we haven't even talked about us. <laughs> right? We haven't even talked about our stories about y'all's stories and about mine, about how God took even me and even you and he removed us from the place of wrath and brought us into the place of refuge. I mean, think about it. The promised line was going to come through David's line. The promise was made to him and he even spoke this promise and yet he himself needed rescue. Friends, that That is the word. That is the gospel. That is the message that our friends need to hear. That is the message that our world needs to hear. That God's people are filled with those who are hurting and who were once rebellious. That that we we were one time enemies of his kingdom. Too often the world looks at the church and sees it as this group of people who who are striving towards holiness and righteousness, but we have an expectation that in order to enter into God's people, you must achieve this standard of righteousness and holiness. That's how the world perceives us. You have to get it all together. But what they need to hear is that entrance into God's kingdom is not based on moral success, it's based on rescue. That they and we needed and need to be 
rescued. Rescued from our sin and our rebellion. Rescued from our opposition to God. Rescued from finding peace and refuge in things other than him. And that is what God offers to us. That is what he offers to us through his son. That is what our friends are needing to hear, that the warning, it is real, but it is a warning that is to incite repentance and find peace. And I want you to look and see what it is that people do in response to this. That those who respond to this warning in verse 11 serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. To rejoice. To rejoice. That's what we are to do. That we are to rejoice because we have found peace in God's anointed and peace in God's rescue. We rejoice because we have found peace in his rule. And that's where the psalmist takes us, to God's rule. Look at verse 12. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Now, that's an idiom. We don't use that kind of a phrase very often. Kiss the sun. It's a Hebrew idiom, and it's It's indicating that that we are to serve God with reverence. It's a way of giving formal and public acknowledgement that the Son, the Anointed One, that Jesus, He is our King. That when we have seen not only His power, but also His rescue, His deliverance of us, that we cannot but fall in service to Him. So kids, you know what this is like? This is like uh, the Lion King. In the Lion King, you remember the movie The Lion King with Simba? Simba's the, the king over the pride lands, but he's kind of forgotten that he's the king or he's trying to forget about it, and so he runs off into the desert, right? He runs away from, from his responsibility, and he comes across the, the two probably best characters in the movie, right? Timon and Pumbaa, right? These, these two people, I don't even remember what Timon is, maybe like a meerkat or something, and Pumbaa's this warthog, right? And, and so Timon and Pumbaa, they're, they're his friends, but they have no idea who Simba is until Nala shows up, and Nala reveals that Simba is the rightful king and that he needs to return and he needs to rescue the Pride Lands from the, the rebellion of Scar. He needs to save them and deliver them. And so after a little bit of cajoling, after a little bit of convincing, finally, finally he goes. And he goes to make war against Scar and to rescue his people. And when they show up at the Pride Lands, you remember Timon and Pumbaa, they show up. And Timon, or Pumbaa, that, that warthog, he throws himself on the ground and he goes, at your service, my liege. <laughs> and in doing that, what he's saying is, you are my king. Wherever you will lead, I will follow. Whatever you will call me to do, I will do. You're going to war, I'm going with you. You are my king. Friends, that's what we're to do. That when we kiss the sun, that's what we are saying. You see, it's not just a statement of cognitive uh, assent. It's not just a way of saying, this is who I believe you to be. When we kiss the son, when we give him homage, when we fall on our chest before him and say, at your service, my liege, we're saying that with our mouths and with our minds and with our hearts and with our hands and with our feet and with our very souls, we will serve you in every way that you call us to because you are our king. That's what the psalmist says, right? In verse 11, serve the Lord. There's no other place where we to find refuge, but in service of our Lord, of the King who is the anointed one, who used his life. Think about this. 
The king of the universe used his life and his authority to rescue you, to rescue his people and to rule over us as a benevolent king who loves his people and to give us peace. A friend of mine once said that you can't find refuge and peace away from God, but you can find it in him. And that's what this psalm is inviting us to do, to find peace in the Lord, the anointed one. Friends, let us kiss the sun and serve the king of peace. Father, we do thank you that you have sent your son, the anointed one, the rescuer, the one who rules today and for all time, you have sent him, our Lord Jesus, to deliver us, to save us, and to give us peace. Help us now to walk in that peace, to find our refuge in him and in him alone. We pray all this in Jesus' name and God's people said together.